Let's go ahead today and um, you know, discuss the the matter of suffering. I don't want to call it the problem of suffering, right? Because that that makes a certain assumption. If I call it problem, then somebody's gonna you know start on the defensive or start from that position that suffering fundamentally is a problem. But you and I have a different perspective on suffering. Has your view of suffering changed? I mean, have you suffered in life and um, you know seen it as something? of a negative force, um, and, and then revise that position? I think, of course, I, I think everybody sees it as a negative force initially. And, and as, as your, you know, gut response and everybody continues to see it. I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's not too common to see people volunteer for suffering, although it does happen. You see it in monastics, you see it in, you know, various, I sometimes have chosen to suffer just to kind of test myself and see what I'm about. I had yeah. uh, a few years ago, I had a molar removed without lidocaine. That, that a guy, there you go. You I, know, wrote a, just, I wrote a piece not too long ago and I cite my uncle who um, absolutely refused any sort of uh, dental numbing agents, you know, and just goes all natural. So yeah. I mean, I just company. tried it once to see what it was, you know, to see if I could do it. Um, but yeah, I think we all naturally have a, you know, a gut response against it. I mean, of course, you know, we, it's not something that we enjoy. It's kind of the opposite of pleasure. So, you know, of course we would have that. Yeah. For most people, it's not, I mean, sure. There are folks who are into it, but, um, you know, most of us might put it in the um, unappealing or, you know, displeasurable category, something like that. But, you know, are, do other things fit in those categories in life, right? You know, the unappealing, the unfavorable, the um, displeasing, you know, the whatever doesn't feel, well, pleasant. Here I go again, the same word, but you know, I, I think there's other like homework, right? Homework can fit in that category too. <clears throat> Maybe we could call it a type of suffering in certain circles, you know, when you're a kid, right? Like you're, you're doing things, you're doing activities in your own development that fit in those boxes, but there's a different awareness and we may not call that suffering. You know, maybe we call it, you know, oh, it's annoying or it's boring or it's whatever it is. Um, they're tasks that we do to craft ourselves. And so I wonder then if we can talk about suffering more broadly, you know, um, in light of those other displeasures. You know, when, um, when I hear people and, and very often, you know, I'm in a, a Coptic world uh, full of very successful people, you know, who you, you take those basic principles of uh, orthodoxy and, and you apply them into America and you tend to have a pretty good life, you know? Yeah. And I hear them when they talk about the poor and I hear others, you know, talking about the poor, the poor, and, and I kind of crack up because I grew up poor on welfare, 
the world I lived in was poor. I ran a shop for many years and everybody I hired was poor from that world. And there is this, for me, the single most standout trait that fosters that world and continues it is the question of delayed gratification and immediate gratification. Mm. So we're back to what you're talking about. I can have pleasure at this moment, or I can say no to the pleasure and put myself through some level of suffering at this point. So like you're saying, even homework, you know, Um, and I, I used to say that, you know, Hey, you know, this dorky kid who was home doing his homework while I was out smoking weed and, you know, sleeping around with girls. Well, now he's got a nice home with a, you know, big income and I'm laying on 145 degree asphalt on my back under a motor home, turning a wrench. And there's a reason for that, you know, that, that, I chose the immediate gratification and and you have it modeled in your home, in your community, you know, in your school, you you know, it's modeled everywhere. And this is the paradigm, you you know, go, go open a a poor person's fridge. You'll find plenty of beer, you know, and they have some really expensive weed they're smoking. And um, you know, it's all about, you know, this moment of relief. And I, and I have sympathy for it, you know, because there is a, a relief that you want from this world that you're living in. So I understand it, but it doesn't change the dynamic that if you don't choose the suffering, the harder road, the delayed gratification, there are going to be longer term ramifications that are going to be ultimately more painful. And that's kind of, you know, our Christian faith um, very much teaches that. Uh, I was, you know, these were things that I was kind of discovering before I even became Orthodox, Mm -hmm. before I really entered into a place where voluntary self-imposed suffering of fasting, of standing through long liturgies, of, you know, disciplines that you put on yourself, you know, before I'd even encountered those, I had kind of caught the concepts and I had learned that, you know, if you wanted to ask me what are the most great and profound things that ever happened to me in my life, I would probably point you to the worst. I would point you to the time when I was looking across the room at a shotgun and coming up with a plan how to get out the window and down the street so my family didn't have to deal with the mess, you know, and um, time when, you know, I was times when I was in utter torment, you know, going through my divorce and I would losing two weeks after walking into a Coptic church, I lost my job of 28 years and I also lived there. So it was my home and it was under pretty dirty circumstances. And, you know, I mean, you talk about devastation, you yeah. know, and, and I'm in my forties and, but looking back, you know, that is one of the greatest things that ever happened to me. So I think that, you know, hopefully we gain some perspective, you know, especially as we get a little older that um, the suffering can help to form things in us. And if you don't volunteer, I mean, you're going to go through some suffering, right? And, you know, there's that saying that the same sun that hardens the clay melts the wax. Uh That You know, it doesn't, suffering, I don't like saying suffering produces X, Y, or Z, because it doesn't necessarily. And some people, it just makes you worse, you know, but it can produce that if it's received, understood, and handled in the right way. And I think that's kind of what I was curious to hear your opinion on when you, you mentioned the, the voluntary aspect of 
suffering. Or, and, and that seems to indicate to me, first, before one makes it voluntary or not, right, there's got to be an awareness. And what is the default sort of position on something like suffering? Because um, I think you just said it, um, you can re- repeat or rephrase, but you know, there's, there's, a tr- <clears throat> there's a time where things may not be voluntary, but what might be voluntary is related to our awareness, right? The, the, the perception of the event. And our response to it. Yes. Right. So um, what does it take, you know, to, for, for folks who are on the other side and they accept a paradigm where suffering bad, eliminate all suffering, you know, like that's, that's the goal. If someone is from that starting position, I mean, what's the transition? How, how does one develop? I, I think one might point back to when they themselves or others that they respect um, have seen suffering produce something great. I mean, if you look back through history, right, you got pretty much all the heroes were born out of suffering, you know, and horrible circumstances that we wouldn't choose. You know, nobody would choose those, but it formed them into what they are. They might be somebody who has a great deal of respect for like us Marines. Mm-hmm. And then you point back to, you know, explaining what actually they go through in boot camp and the suffering that gets imposed upon them to form this in them. Um, you know, one thing that I noticed when I'd become Orthodox, you know, we, we understand salvation soteriology in these terms where, you know, Christ becomes human and joins himself to humanity. And taking it into himself, he changes what it is to be human. And I noted that in the Old Testament, when you see suffering, it's always in a negative light. Always. You know, and it's like, it's usually because they really screwed up. They turned their back on God. And God either directly or indirectly puts them into, you know, or allows them into a position in a period of great suffering. And this is throughout the whole Old Testament. It's not a good thing. But then you look at the New Testament. And everywhere you see suffering mentioned, it's in a positive light. It, it's, it's said in a good way. And it's like, wait, what happened to suffering that it went from being bad to something that actually is used for good? Christ joined suffering. Mm-hmm. It got joined to him in his divinity, and it transfigured what suffering is and, and, and what it will do if you find yourself in Christ. So I think for those people, I would say, you know, though these principles work generally, but I would just point to, you know, the the instances, the times, the places where they know the suffering did do a good thing, where it does do a good thing, you know, where the the studying for finals and then the degree and the long-term benefit after going through the suffering. So I think that would be the best intro. I mean, there, you know, Sam Harris I think it was that I heard talk about, you know, what he calls objective morality, which is ridiculous because he can't ground it at the bottom. If you can't ground it at the bottom, it's not objective. And it starts with a presumption of the value of human life and human uh, benefit, what we would call human benefit. Well, you, you have to ground that first. You don't get to use that as your starting place. You have to say, why, why, why is human benefit? It's that's just preference. That's not morality, but 
in any event, you know, he kind of defines it as that which does the most good for the most people or alleviates the most suffering for the most people. But really, I mean, think about it. If you raised a child and kept him away from all obstacle, all resistance, all pressure, all form of suffering, what kind of a person would you end up with? Right. You know, <laughs> I think the word resistance is kind of key too, right? It, especially like in take weight training or something where the word resistance, you know, like it is actively used in order to build. You must endure resistance and you must endure obstacle in order to, you know, break down muscle fiber. So it rebuilds at a, you know, a, a larger mass, right? Well, th there's a great point. So beyond the resistance, what's the second feature? is nutrients mm. so you have to have them because the resistance without the nutrients you're not building nothing you know you're just going to get sicker and weaker and die and the nutrients without the resistance you're going to get obese and weak and atrophy yeah but you put both of those together and so i think that's a really important point to bring up that if we want to talk about suffering we have to talk about you know and and how it can be beneficial we have to talk about what are you putting in to you as you're encountering and, and facing this resistance and pushing back against it and growing through it, what kind of nutrients are you putting in? And, you know, let's go back to your weight training. You got somebody standing over you and saying, this doesn't matter. Uh, you're going to go through all this for nothing because the game is rigged and you won't gain muscle. You won't gain fitness. You won't gain strength. You know, pretty quick, you're going to put those weights down and you're going to stop. So, you know, here we go again with uh, kind of the broader picture of things and, and versus you got a, a coach up there. And what is that coach telling you? You can do it, you know, keep pushing, come on and I'll help you a little, but you got to do the pushing. And so you got two different kinds of coaches there. And I think we can look at our society and see both of those voices pretty clearly. It makes sense. You know, the, the, the suffering event right, is, we'll call it the resistance, or at least it, it, it has some type of resistive element to it. And so it, it's not about just, is it only about pushing back? Or is it about, you know, what you're taking in as you're pushing back, and, and not to think of it as one suffering event, but rather something, but rather, um, however, sorry, I use them all together and I know you're not supposed to, but I can make my own rules. It's my show. So, you know, rather than think of it as one event, it's a, uh, it's more processual, right? And if you're, you know, you're feeding the right way, you're just, I'm, I guess I'm repeating what you're saying. You're putting the right things into your body. You're positioning your body to respond to the suffering event with repair mechanism, Right. And so that repair mechanism isn't just fixing what happened, but it's actually improving and preparing, you know, the next suffering event at a better in, being in a better position for it. And so when I think about it, then I'm thinking there's a sliding scale to this and, you know, trying to make, you know, a whole, uh, you know, worldview on uh, uh, elimination of suffering is kind of lame. Uh, and, you know, I teach my classes and, and especially those that deal with suffering. You know, I, I quote Mel Brooks quite frequently who said, you know, when I see a man step into a manhole and die, that's comedy. 
when I stub my toe, it's tragedy. Right. And so that's, you know, it's intended to be funny and make you laugh. It made me laugh the first time I heard it. And I still, I love the, the phrase because I see Mel's face, you know, as he's stubbing his toe, like now the world is over. I've stubbed my toe, you know, but the guy dying, you know, who's going to fall into a manhole and die. That's obnoxious. That's ridiculous. <clears throat> so there, there's a degree of like, obviously it's a joke, but you know, stubbing your toe, <laughs> you see different people react in different ways to, you know, these event stimuli and like, the uh, the premise that you know removing suffering is the necessary need for advancing humanity is lost just on the sliding scale. If I think about it, well, you know, I I have I, I hate to tie everything back to you know orthodoxy, but honestly, that's my. It's world. okay, you're orthodox. You can <laughs> you know yeah whatever you want. And you know, coming from a. a my evangelical background, you know, I was at a mega church for quite a while. And, you know, the head pastor, you know, he's like the shepherd who comes down from the hill, his mansion on the hill once a week and collects up the fleece and, you know, gives you a little pep talk and goes back up the hill. But he never gets dirty. He never gets fleas on it, you know. And um, even the, the sub shepherds, you know, the, in orthodoxy, when we talk about the nutrients you know, that we put into us. It's just been amazing to me to have a priest, you know, and, and that's what he does basically is you're going through the resistance and the suffering. He meets with you periodically and, and frequently to kind of, he gives you new nutrition, you know, spiritual, mental, psychological nutrition to be able to address and deal with this suffering in a way that it produces strength and muscle. Instead of just something that, you know, is, and, and, and he also tailors to make sure that you have kind of the right resistance on the resistance you're choosing to, to undergo. So you're, you're not, you know, struggling under a barbell across your throat that you can't move and you're not pushing an empty bar, but he keeps you in a place where you have the right resistance and the right input and the right nutrition to be able to allow this suffering and this difficulty to help you to grow and, and to strengthen your soul. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there, there's an input, right? And so, you know, in, in that case, like the awareness is there already, I think. And the, the perspective on suffering is going to be different than, uh, you know, Western society at large these days. But, um, you know, a lot of listeners aren't from that perspective. And I wonder if it's a, a good starting point just to, to be conscious of the inputs, the inputs that prep, that prep um, unfortunate, unpleasant, you know, whatever events, things that we would lump into suffering to get, a, to at least reformat the way we look at it and say, it's not the problem of suffering. I mean, if, if we call it the problem of suffering, that you know, we've stated our our position. If it's the matter of suffering in in the human condition, and what does that mean? I mean, we, you know, without suffering, we don't get the types of art, you know, that um, humanity has produced. You know, there, there's so many benefits that emerge from it, and it 
it's not to say that we should all go suffer. Let's go suffer and, and get fired up about it. Right. Like, you know, let me put, let me put a hammer through my toe or slam my, <laughs> my, my big toe with a hammer and see how that feels uh, just for fun, you know, and uh, <clears throat> that's not it. That like, it, it's, it's, it's just maybe being dispassionate, I guess. No, it's funny that you mentioned art. Cause I, I've mentioned that to my wife so many times there were, you know, these the, the great uh, icons from the you know the, the golden era of rock and roll and stuff you know and um, I came into it you know years later because I'm always you know ten years behind any curve but like when I you know discovered Guns and Roses and it had been you know ten years after they you know come out with stuff and I'm like oh my god this guy's amazing and his writing and everything and then I found out about you know this guy was a mental wreck the angst that he was under and the torment he was under. And then I understood like he finally got some psychological help after beating up a pizza delivery guy or something. And it was like, that was it. He couldn't write anymore, you know, but there is something in, in the angst and the anguish and the suffering that does kind of bring something out from some people, you know, and, and it does, um, you know, there, there's, I think when we talk about the perceptions, there's also, so we're talking here about preparation of what we should expect, but there's, you know, this being taken aback, like this shouldn't be happening and this isn't normal. Mm. There's something weird is happening when, when we go through a suffering. And I, I, you know, I very often hear, you know, people saying like, oh, you don't know what it's like to be a black man in America. And I don't obviously, but I wonder, I, I really believe that he doesn't know what it's like to be a white man. And so we might have an idea in our mind that something else is much easier than it is. And so therefore the suffering, whatever it is I go through might be elevated in my mind, not realizing, you know, the basic premise of life is hard as hell for everybody. Yeah. You know, it is. I mean, if you're, you know, uh, black kid in an all white school or a white kid in an all black school. And you're going through, you know, torment and suffering from the other kids who are jerks. How about the kid with big ears? You know, how about the ginger kid who yeah. talked to a ginger kid sometime about what they went through when they went to school that we just, because we don't know how much suffering others go through. I, I honestly am of the belief and I have been for most of my life that by the time you're, eight or 10 years old at the latest, you've been through the full spectrum of human emotion and experience as far as how things hit you. That, you know, the first time a two-year-old can't have what they want, that's the only time in their life they've ever not gotten what they want. Yeah. And that torment is just as real, you know, as the father losing his home and family, you know? I mean, it's, it's huge. So I think, you know, it's, it's a good place to start with understanding the commonality of this suffering between us and not to have the misperception that others have it great and don't go through suffering. And, and we do. There are a lot of rich people committing suicide. Oh, yeah. You oh, know, yeah. And, and we tell ourselves, if only. Well, no, it's not that simple. You know, the human experience, we, we have a picture in our mind of how much better something is somewhere else. And I think it's a wrong picture. Yeah, <laughs> that's a, a good example. And I think it goes back to, you know, 
what you were saying at the beginning, just about income and people who've um, they've acquired different things. And so what, you know, you and I might be more catalyst toward maybe a big shift for them when they experience it. And I, I remember, um, you know, in, Oh, I mean, it's not just an undergrad, but in LA, right? Like there's, there's people who view movies differently. And um, I, I've found that the wealthier the person, the more they like, you know, neorealism and, you know, European movements about how terrible and miserable life is. Um, and it's their vicarious experience of that suffering that, oh, yeah, that's what we do. <laughs> you know, it's not an interesting movie for people who already are poor. Like, yeah, that's my life for the last three years, you know, and like next, you know, and so um, there's some kind of measurability toward it, whether it's the two year old who hasn't gone through any of that experience. Now this is this, you know, new sh shock reality happening, you know, or it's the, you know, the far end where it's that level of, of shock needs to be that great of a loss in order to re-experience something so hard and miserable as that. I think um, the, the way in which that it, there isn't a, a common um, basis for suffering other than, you know, the subjective unpleasantness. I, I don't know. I mean, is there a different way you've thought about that? Well, there, it's, and it's all relative to the world we're living in. Yeah. You know, I've, I, I wrote a book that's going to be coming out soon about, and it, it, you know, it starts with my whole background and story. And the, ultimately the point is about becoming Orthodox and the things I found in Orthodoxy and how they differ from Western religion. But like, there's a, here's a great example. So I, I talk in the book about my first driving lesson. And I grew up in El Monte in a really crappy little town on welfare with a junkie alcoholic for a dad. And, he took me to this little trailer park and we had this big Ford LTD four door, you know, this huge, it was a land yacht, you know? And I think I was probably about 14 and he said, wait here, you know, and he went into this trailer, into this mobile home. And about 10 or 15 minutes later, he came out wasted. He just shot up a bunch of heroin and he came out to the car and he goes, you got to drive son. And so I scooted over into the driver's seat and I was terrified, you know, I'd never driven before and I got to drive us home with this huge yacht. I look back on that memory with fondness. Mm. I remember the smile on his face and the peace. And I remember the excitement that I get to drive a car. Oh my gosh, you know, this is amazing. So, I mean, my point here is that you have to understand something in somebody else's perspective that, you know, you might hear that or somebody that didn't come from a dysfunctional home would hear that and be terrified, but that's not how it was experienced, you know, whereas there can be, you know, um, some rich kid who's totally, you know, uh, indulged all the time, who's told no finally and, and the suffering he goes through. So it's all so complex and relative to your experience. Yeah, it is. And I think, you know, in a similar vein, that one aspect of suffering that is quite prominent today, that idea of being offended, I think, you know, we don't, we don't think of being offended um, 
so much, you know, as uh, a suffering event, you know, but I think ultimately it boils down to that. Like the person who is being offended is declaring a state of, uh, of distress, distress. Right. And those who offend um, intentionally or unintentionally, they create situations in and among people who, you know, they may or may not know that they're creating distress. I, I always thought that the idea of being offended was a little um, tacky. And um, I remember back in undergrad, I was, I was on a, a roll. I finally figured out how to be a good writer. And uh, I had 12 essays due over the course of one semester across my classes. And I got 11 out of 12 A's just because like, now I get it. Now <clears throat> I'm, I've become a, uh, an effective writer, you know, and uh, the one A that wasn't, I got a C. And it's because uh, the subject matter was deeply offensive to the TA. And that, those were the, you know, the, the comments effectively I got back and read on my, you know, paper that I turned in and, you know, I'm thinking the whole time. Yeah. But like, it's, it's the subject matter, you know, like what's your issue with me and, and like the output of the text that's been produced, what's happening to you and and how does that impact, you know, me as a writer? So um, I don't know. I think, I think offense is a, it's an issue we should like suffering, not just take for granted, right? Like, why do we get offended? Why do, why does distress happen? Why does, you know, a suffering event occur in the human person if X, Y, or Z is said, you know, like the easiest is calling someone a name, you know, or saying something someone doesn't like Um, maybe, you know, I mean, and now I'm thinking as I go off on this riff that there's, there are things that may be more commonly offensive than others, right? Like there's things that, you know, we could survey a crowd and maybe only four or five out of a hundred people are offended by it, but they're deeply offended, you know, Um, maybe it's 10, 20%. And then there's like 90, 95%. I remember in Japan, we were, um, we were there at a buddy of ours had, um, you know, seen this uh, on the Tokyo subway, seen this guy, he's a homeless guy, a Japanese guy, you know, and in, in Japan, homeless people are sort of non-people. They get their passports taken away and, you know, kind of shunned from society. He gets on, on the subway. Uh, I could have been a train, but, uh, but the same difference. And, uh, you know, he just starts wanking it in front of everybody right? You know, your eyes just, you react to that, right? There's, you know, maybe it's not distress or offense. Maybe it's like, Hey, good on you, bro. But, um, (laughs) you know, here he is. And I mean, if you know, Japanese culture among, you know, Asian cultures, but Japanese, especially they're very, you know, very quiet. Don't draw any attention toward it. It will all be over soon. It would just wait to get off. So our, our buddy goes up, you know, grabs the guy and throws him out of the, of the train. 
And then everybody like oh, the Japanese people start clapping and, you know, they're very happy. Oh, like wow. all that distress that was bottled up, right. was relieved because the gaijin comes over and takes care of what would have been socially unacceptable for them to even address. So, wow. 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 That's an experience. <laughs> you know, it's uh, we got stories. We all got stories. Well, yeah, I mean, there it's it's also subjective that, you know, what is more generally offensive and less so. But honestly, I, I think you'd be hard pressed to find reasonable people who will tell us the pendulum hasn't swung too far the other way. Um, and, and that's, you know, that's humanity, man. I, I swear there is no progress there has never been progress in humanity, in, in the state of humanity. It's every time it's the same thing. We're way off in this direction. We need to correct it. And we swing it way too far the other way. And we lose the good stuff that we had while we were over here. You know, people don't understand what conservatism is. Because I was watching, a, a, it was Candace Owens talking to somebody and he says, you know, name me a time that was better, like this golden age, whatever time you want to go back to, you know, name me the time that was better, you know, that, that you seem to be reminiscing and, and missing. And I think it, it he's right in, in asking that, but I think the whole thing is based on this wrong way we approach it, because at any point you'll find, okay, there are these things that aren't good and need to be addressed. But in doing so, we end up throwing out everything and losing some really important stuff that was good, you know, and that's what conserve. I want to conserve the good stuff. And it doesn't mean I'm opposed to change. And, and certainly there are things that need to be addressed. And absolutely. But I think that's just like this story of human endeavor that like, OK, we see that, you know, there are things that are tolerated that should offend us. You know, the way that somebody might treat, um, you know, a person of color or a homosexual or, you know, whatever that, yes, and, and the way they might degrade and denigrate them, you know, yes, I, I get it, you know, and, and you're right. But it's like this pendulum has swung so far over the other way that, that there, was, there was a couple of guys that they wrote that book, right, on, on victim culture. I don't know if you're aware of it. I haven't read it, but I kind of read a synopsis, which was really good. And it talked about the three kinds of cultures. So there's honor culture, like in the East and the Middle East, where it's what your neighbors and others around you think of you that is paramount, your reputation in the community. And then there is dignity culture, which is more our Western where it's what I know of myself. I mean, think back to all the great heroes in all the movies. He's the guy who stood alone and didn't yeah. care that everybody else thought the wrong thing of him because right. he knew in his heart and he had the conviction in himself. What he was doing was right. And then he would prevail at the end. And then others would see that he was right. And he would be vindicated. So here you have, you know, the dignity culture where it's what you know of yourself. And now this third culture that has never been known before, victim culture. And they speak in, in this book about the new, you know, everything has a victim hierarchy, everything. And they were saying, even in the intellectual arena, the most intelligent and intellectual is the one that can spot offense in the most places. 
So we hear things like microaggression, you know, and it's like, oh, that if you can see it where other people can't, you're intellectually above those around you who can't see it. And I think that's huge. Like what, what's going on and what are we becoming that this is what we're looking for? I, I talked to a guy a while back and he was saying, do you really think that these people are all making it up as far as, you know, um, being, you know, having, being discriminated against or treated differently because of, you know, race or whatever other issue. And I said, no, I don't believe they're making it up. But if you're fed on a narrative and if you're fed on the narrative of offense, you will see it where it doesn't exist. Mm. Not might, you will. Not to say it doesn't exist, yeah. but you'll see it in places where it's not there. You'll walk into a store and the clerk behind the counter just had a fight with his wife. Yeah. And he's right. in a really bad mood. And you'll walk out saying that guy was crappy to me because he's a racist and because of the color of my skin. You know, you'll, you'll see it where it isn't. And really, is this, I mean, what kind of culture is this going to be? And it is already becoming that. I live in LA, so everybody's pissed off at everybody. Yeah. All the time. (laughs) All the time. Everybody's pissed off. You know, you're in my way. You're offending me here. You're, you know, all the time. Like, what kind of world is that where we don't have any generosity, you know, any benefit of the doubt that maybe, maybe it's not what I think. Maybe this person isn't against me. Yeah. Yeah. And um, since you brought up orthodoxy, um, I'm thinking of, you know, something I read from uh, Maximus, the confessor, um, you know, regarding, he was sending, you know, um, uh, letters to the monks. And one of the things he talks about is, you know, in trying to attain love, right? Like perfect love, um, which that's the broader thing going on. He says, if you're offended by anything, either intentional or unintentional, you don't know the way of peace. Like there's something about you um, that, you know, is leading toward those, those distress moments, those suffer, the inner suffering and taking you away from, you know, whatever the goal of the monks were. And I I think in light of our conversation, um, you know, that may apply toward, how we, we conceive of suffering more broadly. Um, but then I asked the question, you know, like, well, what, <clears throat> what is worth being offended by, you know, like here he's saying anything. Right. But I, I understand the goal in mind, you know, that he's saying that is to attain, you know, um, a perfection in love, you know, and, and how the, that person perceives the world. Um, but, you know, like there are different things that are um, that we commonly and, and maybe that's the issue. And maybe that's the difference between being a enlightened being, you know, versus uh, being a regular person. Right. Like. I think we have to draw a line between being offended and our response to the thing that offends us. I think those are two very different things because, you know, very often you can't control your visceral reaction to something that's, you know, it hits you the way it hits you. And if you're trained one way, you might learn to desensitize and through practice and time, you know, become less sensitive to things. But then there comes a question of my response. How am I going to act when I get offended? And so my question 
would, you know, my wife is really good at teaching me, you know, you start with what are you trying to do? What's your goal? Yeah. You know, so start there. Okay. I got offended and I'm going to respond. What's my goal in this response? Am I going to try to change this person who might be a jerk? Let's say it's legitimate. You know, this person is a jerk. Am I going to try to change that person? Is that my goal? Like, what kind of a life am I going to have if my goal is to change the jerks in this world into nice people? Yeah. <laughs> <You know? laughs> How's that going to play out? More like me. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so, so you have to ask, you know, what is it? And, and that's where I think a good, healthy attitude of, you know, learning boundaries like, okay, you know, this person is a jerk and, and I don't have to have interaction with them. So I can, you know, get some space here. Going back into responding. Um, we've, uh, we talked about that with suffering and the nutrients we, we take in. Right. And so um, the uh, offensive situations then seem to me similar because <clears throat> we, we may be offended to the degree that we're not prepared. I don't know if that's the right way to think about it. I, you know, I think a little compassion for the other person probably will go a long way. You know, I, I hated my mom for most of my life. And then the last few years I matured and I looked at her background. She grew up in World War II Germany with bombs falling on her, you know, and an abusive mother. And I, I looked at her formation and I came to understand that she actually did pretty good with the cards she was dealt. She really tried hard, you know, and the things that bothered me, it, she was trying, you know. And after that, we ended up having the most wonderful relationship. I thank God that she didn't die with things the way they were. We had for the last couple of years, the most wonderful time. And, you know, I'm in a, a Coptic church. Mm -hmm. full of Egyptians. Now, yeah, you roll up a tattooed biker, rolling up on a Harley, wearing a t-shirt to liturgy at the Coptic church. There are going to be people who look at you a certain way. People who are, you know, going to gossip about you and, yeah. you know, uh, look at you askance. And, but you see, I think having some compassion the other way, saying, okay, but they're a minority here in America, or, you know, their background, it's the other, the outsider isn't safe, you know, and they've been taught to fear the outsider with good reason, you know, and, and let's face it, it's never without any reason. There's some reason. So understanding why they're offended, but see, like, when I, when I stop and I go, okay, but what are they doing to me? They, you know, an old lady's looking at me like, hmm. you know, oh, okay. And that's yes. it. This is my extent of suffering that she thinks this of me, that she talks to the other woman about me. How is this impacting my life? And the fact is it really isn't, it, it doesn't have much impact. So having some compassion for her background and some understanding of how she got there and the basis for her having that kind of fear, and that's usually what it's rooted in, you know, that kind of fear that makes her behave a certain way towards me, I think it's gone a long way for me to be able to walk into any parish, and I don't get bothered at all by 
anybody thinking. And, and what's funny is if you don't get offended over time, you may find you have more impact than you think, mm. you know, it was yeah. a couple of years in, and I don't know if it was because these old Coptic people heard stories from their grandkids about me teaching classes about how amazing this Coptic church was. I don't know if it was from seeing me at midweek Lenten liturgies that are in Arabic and I'm standing there with another language and going to multiple liturgies and they see me all year round. But at some point, some they turned a corner and, you know, there's these old stone faced Egyptian women. They don't smile at each other. They don't smile at their husbands. They don't smile at anybody. They started smiling at me. And I was, I didn't expect it. You know, I wasn't looking for it. I'm not there for a social club. I'm there to grow spiritually. And I was just like surprised by it. But I think if you don't get offended and you understand there's a reason for that. Look, I walk into somewhere and I'm a tattooed biker and I'm wearing my scarf and my sunglasses and I look like I just got off my bike and my beards, you know, and somebody, you know, who is this guy? Yeah, that doesn't come out of nowhere. There's a reason, and there are a lot of guys that look like me that have done a lot of things that ain't too pleasant, and that doesn't come out of thin air. But I can either get offended, how are you judging me because I look this way, or I can say, yeah, there are a lot of people look like me. They've done a lot of crappy stuff in the past. I understand it, and no problem. And I'll just, over time, I'll show you that that's not me, and then I'm the one who helps you to pick something up when you drop it. And I'm the one that tips you very well, or I'm the one that is gracious and kind towards you. And I'm starting to actually impact and change their stereotypical thinking. But, you know, I'm actually going to then start having an impact on somebody else in a way that if I were to get all mad and fold my arms or, you know, be aggressive, I would just keep heightening and worsening and affirming what they thought about the kind of person I was. So I think maybe it's good to start by asking how much is this really affecting me? You know, how much is this really damaging my life that this person's looking me at me a certain way, or this person makes a comment a certain way. Yeah. You know? And going back to Maximus, you know, he, he looks at being offended as you know rooted in self-indulgence and self-esteem. Right. And it seems what you described just there, was a case study when you don't make it about you, but you, you you take a moment and ask, okay, well, why is the person offended by my presence? You know, it, like because it, it work, it's going both ways in this case, right? The immediate reaction is like, well, why would they treat? Why would someone at a church treat you that way? Uh, that's the self-indulgent, you know, like oh, how dare they? But putting putting them in your mind first, it's a good exercise. And I I think that that was a, you know, I think it's a good question. Why would they treat me that way? But ask it honestly. Yeah. Right. You know, not like, why would they, you know, but like for real, like, Oh, they have a background and yeah, they've the only people they've seen that look like me are probably on movies. Yeah. Yeah. Realistically. (laughs) Yeah. And, and those, I'm sorry. I know this will offend a lot of people, but the stereotypes come from something. Yeah. They, they come from a reality, all the stereotypes, you know, and it's not to say that now, therefore, everybody who looks a certain way or acts a certain way is the same, but it's to say that, yes, there are generalizations that are true. And so, you know, instead of, you know, and then you can ask yourself, okay, why did they treat me this way? Well, this is why, because they have this perception. 
Is that perception true or isn't it? It's the next question you should ask yourself because it might be true. But if it's not true, then it's like, okay, they're mistaken based on an understandable preconception. So now how am I going to respond? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I'm thinking, you know, tying it all back to our, our common thread. If I can synthesize, and I'd like to hear what, you know, you have to say about that just to wrap up. But it seems to me that when we're, that suffering itself, number one, like we started from the position that it's not a problem. It's not the problem of suffering. It's the matter of suffering. Not always a problem. Not always a problem, <laughs> right? But as a matter, it can be problematic, but it, it needn't be. And um, that being the case, <clears throat> it may not be helpful to categorize it as such, but to think of it as um, event interactions where it's a resistance event that is conditioned by response to resistance. And, you know, we should ask ourselves both sides of the question, what are we doing to build um, our response, you know, to those events providing resistance? And um, is it really something to cause damage or distress? Um, I don't know. For me, it's like, you've ever been punched in the head, Mm -hmm. you know, if you've ever been robbed and you have some kind of perspective on what somebody doing something to damage you is that, I don't know. I, I think it, it's, it's helpful, you know, to not be like, you know, Oh, this hurt my feelings and this, you know, like really what, what happened? Like, that's it. Like it hurt your feelings that somebody said or looked at you a certain way. Uh, if that's, do we want fragility? You know, is this a goal? When I grew up, you know, I like to think of myself very much as traditional and in everything, you know, as, an, as a traditional American, as orthodox, I'm traditional. And it's not to say there's everything's perfect and keep everything exactly as it is but to say that I see these root values and these, these core beliefs and, and moral guidelines that are really good and useful that I want to keep preserving and hanging on and passing on, you know, that's my idea of, you know, what it is to be traditional. Yeah. And so being that way, I, I kind of look at it and I go like, it is when I grew up, you didn't want to be fragile weak, vulnerable. These were not things you held up as, you know, goals, as types that you want to emulate. You wanted to be strong and tough and resilient, you know, and I think that there are reasons not just for the sake of being strong, tough, and resilient, but there are reasons you want to be that, and it's going to ultimately produce a better life for you. Whereas now with everybody clamoring to be the victim, to be offended, what kind of life is that going to produce for you? Mm -hmm. You know, it's going to be miserable. Yeah. Well, thank you for that. Um, you have anything you want to plug or promote uh, book podcast? I got a book coming out, but I'm not sure probably another month or two. Eh, I, whatever. By the time some people hear it, he'll have a book out. 
So be on be on the alert. I'm sure you'll go. Yeah, if you're interested in orthodoxy um, and you come, especially from a Protestant background, or see, I kind of had these subgroups and you know, you have somebody you're writing to when you're writing. Okay. So yeah. my first group was kind of Protestant inquirers into orthodoxy who have opened themselves to the possibility. So I'm kind of juxtaposing and, and playing things to show you know, that some of the differences and, and why I believe Orthodox is a reflection of the apostolic teaching. Um, but then there's another subcategory of the Copts who grew up as cradle Copts and may not appreciate what's in front of them because it's, you know, like if, if you grew up in a household and you think mom is always on my case, wants to know everything, always in my business, she's so oppressive, but then you take an orphan who's been living on the streets for five years you know, without food and begging and you move him into the house, he's going to see mom a little differently than you are. And he's going to go, oh my God, she feeds you. She clothes you. She takes yeah. care of you. She mends your wounds. And yeah, she's nosy and in your business stuff because she really loves you and she knows what can go wrong. And so you have a kind of a different insight. And so I'm hoping that for cradle cops, this will offer some insight to what this looks like from the outside to somebody coming in and help them maybe to appreciate things that they may not fully appreciate because they've just kind of always been around it. Nice. Well, I look forward to reading it and um, you know, thanks for stopping by. I hope it's been a a benefit. You schooled me. So um, we'll have to have you back for some other fascinating conversation. God willing. That was uh, really nice. And just hanging out with you again, (laughs) even if it's virtually, we haven't hung out in way too long. It's been a while. It's been a while. Um, it's going to be a while. <laughs> it's gonna be. So until I see you again.